would, using your pew Bibles or the scriptures you brought with you, turn to uh, Luke chapter 3. Uh, Luke chapter 3. We're going to look at the first uh, six uh, verses uh, of this chapter. And I'm hoping this will be a, a, a helpful passage as we think about uh, Advent. As we said a moment ago, uh, this is a, a space on the church calendar where we as a congregation reflect, uh, intentionally so, on uh, Christ's coming and Christ coming again. And what I'm hoping for, desirous of, the purpose of this is that it would uh, cement, anchor us uh, in the person and work of Christ. Reflecting on the past, anticipating the, the present, and thinking about uh, the future. That all those things, past, present, and future, are relevant for us as we think about uh, Advent it is a season characterized by reflection. And maybe you're wondering, well, how do I know if I'm reflecting? I mean, how much? Do I just come on Sunday mornings? Once, twice, four times? Do I have to come on Christmas Eve? How do I know if I'm reflecting uh, on Christ in this Advent? There's many ways you can answer that. Uh, but I'll give you one way. Uh, humility. If you are reflecting and engaging with who Christ is, then I think there should be more of a greater sense of humility uh, in our hearts and our lives. Because when you reflect upon Christ, your eyes are where? They're on Christ. Looking past, looking in the past, he came at this specific time and acted this way, lived this way, died this way, rose this way. Uh, we think about him, we look in the future, he's, he's coming again. Uh, that, that's not it. It's not a one-time deal, but he is coming back, and we anticipate that. It's reflection. It, we're taking our eyes off of ourselves and placing them, them on him. It's not about me and my record. It's not about what, what I did last night or what I said to this person. It's not about how good I am or where I've fallen or where I've failed. It's not all about those things, but it's, it's about him. Our eyes are removed from ourselves. We're not thinking about ourselves anymore. We're thinking about him. C.S. Lewis talks about humility uh, like this. He says, humility is not so much thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking about yourself less. Humility is thinking about yourself less. It's not about your preferences. It's not about your agenda. It's not about your, your schedule. It's not about what you want to see happen or how you want people to respond, but it's about Christ, about who he is and what he has done for you. And so it's a reflection on him. And it leads us to a place of humility, because by extension, we're thinking about ourselves less. Luke chapter 3 is going to help us in this process, I think, uh, get our minds wrapped around this idea of Advent, and what does it mean to have his arrival in my heart and in my life. And so let's read the first uh, six verses of Luke. Stand for the reading of God's word as you're able, and we'll hear it. Luke chapter 3. Starting in verse 1. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, uh, Tractorus, and Licinius, tetrarch of Albany, during the high priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, 
a voice of the one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall be become straight, the rough way smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You pray with me. Father, we uh, ask, this passage is, is a mouthful, and we pray that you would uh, teach us, you would speak to our hearts, and that you would lead us to yourself. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Would you please be seated? A couple of weeks ago, I asked uh, one of our children, you know, what's your, what's your favorite subject? School is in progress pretty good far away into it. You know, what's your favorite subject? And this one said history. It's like, well, I was excited, first of all, that they had a favorite subject, and they said history, and uh, which is good. Uh, they said because just the, the stories that you hear and how it all fits together, they, they like that. And then I thought, you know, that's, that kind of makes sense uh, because the, you've got people in your bloodstream, so to speak, that, that love history. Uh, Janelle's father is one that, that loved reading up on history. He was an educator, loved it. And, uh, but, but sometimes I mentioned the word vacation to her, and she'd kind of twitch a little bit because the vacations they took as a, as a kid, they would always go and visit cemeteries, old cemeteries, okay? History happens in cemeteries. By nature, it's history, okay? So they go visit these things, and they not the whole vacation, but just part of it. They happen to be around one. And uh, whenever we'd see uh, a movie that had a history as a part of it, we would recommend it to him, pass it on to him. He loved movies as well. And one of the movies we reckon, recommended to him was a movie called National Treasure. It had Nicolas Cage in it. And he plays a, a man named Benjamin Gates, and he is a treasure hunter, basically. And he comes from a long line of, of treasure hunters in his family. His father was into it, his grandfather, so on down the line just finding treasure, finding clues, and going after these things. And there was a, a rumor in the family that the uh, founding fathers had planted or hidden this great wealth, a treasure, valuables. And they not only had hidden it in secret, but they left clues behind of how you could find it and come across it. And Benjamin's uh, parents and grandparents, they tried to find this treasure. They'd find a clue that maybe it would lead this way, but it would fail, and they just became skeptical of it. This is not real. This is not happening. This is not there. But Benjamin didn't give up on it. And as the movie opens, they're in the, the Arctic Circle, and they have uncovered this old wooden ship there in the Arctic Circle. It's a movie. I don't know why there's an old wooden ship in the Arctic Circle, but apparently it's there, okay? And they go inside it, and they uh, rifle through all this stuff, and they find what they're looking for, this box. And inside this box, there's this old pipe, and there's this other device in there. It's got a riddle attached to it. It's a movie. They figure out the riddle, and it leads them to say, to go to the, the uh, Declaration of Independence. And what they're inferring, what they're betting on, is what they're anticipating is on the back of the Declaration of Independence, but you didn't know this, there's a map in invisible ink that's on there, and it's going to lead them to this treasure that they've been looking for. This map is going to be, give them the way. It's going to show them how to get there. Well, that idea of a map, I think, is relevant for us as we look at uh, Luke 3, verses 1 through 6. 
Because John is intent on providing us a way, giving us direction, giving us a map, if you will, to find this Christ of Advent for us to see who he is. There's even the language of geography in there. John talks about the way, uh, the way that he's preparing for him. In verses 4, 5, and 6, we get this image of geography and terrain that's there as well. And John is saying, let me show you, in these verses, how to get to Christ. How to get to Advent. How to understand more fully uh, this season, this person of Christ, and what he has done. And how you can be prepared for it. Three things I want us to to look at uh, here briefly. Why we need Advent. uh, How we prepare for Advent. And then how do we see Christ in Advent? How do we actually see him? How do we actually uh, know him? What does that look like from this passage? So the first thing is, is why do we need Advent? Well, John's ministry is one of preparation. We've seen that and we've talked about that a moment ago. And he goes about saying, this is why you need Advent. And there's some clues in his ministry that help us understand, why do I need Advent? Why do I need Christ uh, in my life? And two reasons, two things to highlight. The first reason we need Advent is because we need to hear from God. First reason we need Advent is we need to hear from God. In verse 2 it says, the word of the Lord came. The word of the Lord came. This is God speaking into silence. Uh, this is Old Testament prophecy kind of language. These are, this is the kind of verbiage we'd hear in Isaiah or Malachi. The word of the Lord came. God is about to speak through this individual. He's about to say something uh, to his people. And John here is the last great prophet. He is the last great Old Testament prophet, if you will. 400 years have gone by since God has spoken like this. Can you imagine? 400 years. Children will begin to talk about, you know, my grandfather's grandfather, grandfather, would say that God spoke to them, and they haven't heard. But that has changed. God is now speaking through John, and he's using John to prepare a way John is that link between the Messiah that's coming in the moments ahead and all that's gone on in Israel's history. And so John is this forerunner explaining to the people that Christ is coming. The Messiah is arriving. It's imminent. It's close. He is right at hand. And he speaks to his people. God breaks into our silence, and we need to hear him. We need to hear his words. We need to hear his grace. We need to hear his promises. We need to hear his truth. All of us perhaps have moments when we've been in certain situations and we have complained, God, where are you? Why aren't you answering? Why aren't you helping? Why aren't you saying anything? Magnify that for year after year after year. We live in silence. What do we start to believe? We start to believe the lies. We start to believe the justifications that we have for our actions and for our attitudes. But God speaks into our silence. He says, I am here. I am true. I'm coming. I need to be prepared. I need to be ready. The second thing, the second reason we need to hear, need Advent, is because we need to be made clean. 
We need to be made clean. Meaning when Jesus comes, he's going to provide a new start, if you will. He's going to provide redemption. He's going to provide new birth. He's going to provide grace and forgiveness to make us clean. And we see that through the the imagery that, that John uses, the metaphor maybe, the baptism of repentance that John uses in this passage. He is going about preaching about Christ, preparing the way. And he's where? He's out in the wilderness. He's not going door to door. He's not taking up space in the the, the town square, so to speak. But he's having people come to him. People coming to him and saying, and to receive this baptism of repentance that he's giving them. And it's a picture of the, the need to be made clean. Scholars or commentators will talk about, well, how did... The Jews used baptism uh, in their uh, religion in the, in the Old Testament times, so to speak, before Christ. How did it happen? And certainly with Gentiles who came forward and said, you know what, I want to believe in this God of the Old Testament. I want to be one of you guys. They would be baptized because they needed to be made clean. Uh, they were common. They were from the, 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 the nations. They were, they were dirty. They were unholy, if you will. And they needed to receive this baptism signifying that they've been made clean, that they're a part of this group now. But Jews are also coming to John in the wilderness. Jews are also receiving this baptism of repentance. And it stands to reason that Jews are also seeing their need to be made clean. When you get up in the morning, or when you go out, why do you take a shower? Why do you take a bath? Because you're dirty. You smell. You stink. You're not presentable to other people. And so you try to get clean. That's, that's how we prepare, and that's what Christ promises us as we draw near to him. Recognition that, that we're dirty. We're not fit for him. We need to be cleansed. We need to be made right. And so this is what John is telling us. This is why we need Advent, because we need to hear his voice, because we need to be made clean with the spirit that he is going to give to us. Well, how do we prepare? This is the second point. Uh, How do we prepare for Advent? Look at verses 4 through 6. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight. The rough way smooth. And all people will see God's salvation. Now, obviously, this is John quoting from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 40, uh, verses 3 through 5. Uh, Isaiah is, is a big book. Uh, chapters 1 through 39, in essence, are kind of doom and gloom. Uh, that You're probably not going to have a, f- a lot of fun uh, promises that you're nailing to your refrigerator door from chapters 1 through 39. Because it's a spirit of, of judgments that's there. But chapter 40 marks a turning point where it begins to talk about hope and it talks about God's work and it talks about uh, the servant that's to come. And these verses that that John reads here, that he's using in his ministry, are are the beginning of that hope, beginning of that change that's coming their way, like a prologue, uh, if you will. And here's how this passage uh, makes sense. In the ancient world, when kings were visiting a town place, uh, the people of that town would be prepared. They would prepare for that visit. 
We do this today. When the president travels or he goes to a place, uh, small or big, there's, there's all kinds of preparations uh, to make things look right, to make things presentable to him, to make things reflect the dignity and the, the authority of, of that office. And that was the same in these times. Kings would go forth and say, I'm coming to your town. The town would hear that, and they would make preparations. And part of that preparation was fixing their road system. As, as he's coming into town uh, to, to make that way, that road, fit his office. There was no Department of Transportation back then. There was no staff of engineers that could do things. And so they had to go out and make things right. You, had, you didn't have all these well-established, planned-out roads, but you had these, these paths that people took, and they just kept taking them. Time after time, they became a road or a way. People would be traveling along. There would be a big boulder in front of them. They would just go around. If there was a tree there or a hill there, they would go this way or that way. And so it's all kind of windy and twisty. All these ruts in the road from, from wagon wheels and animals and mud and weather and all kinds of stuff. And they would go forth uh, to make those ways more presentable, to even them out, to straighten them up. That's how they would prepare for the arrival of this individual. And this is Isaiah using that, that picture saying God is, is coming again, using that language with them. And John in his prophecy or in his, his ministry here is picking up on that, that language and using that as a metaphor for us today to prepare our hearts and our lives for this way that's coming, to prepare for him. And so when he says these, these verses, he talks about the mountains and the valleys and the crooked and the, and the, and the rough ways, He's saying this is how we need to prepare ourselves for the arrival, not of an earthly king, but of our ultimate king, the eternal king, uh, the son of God coming into our midst. And so it's not like we take up this, this massive kind of public works project, so to speak, to prepare for his arrival, but it's more of a private heart work project that we prepare for his arrival. We take these mountains and these valleys, these crooked ways, and we prepare that those things that are in our hearts and our lives for his arrival, for his coming. And so think about the mountaintops like this. Think of the mountaintops in our hearts as pride that needs to come down. When you think about pride, sometimes some of us go to the Pharisees. Uh, they were all about the externals, all about doing things. And they had this reputation of looking down on other people because they're the ones that have it right they're the ones that have their lives in order. They're the ones that really follow and obey. They look down on other people. And John is saying those mountains of pride need to come down. They need to be made low. They need to be humbled, so to speak, where we stop looking down on other people. Prideful people are also, when they're criticized, they're bitter, they feel stung, it's very hurtful. Why? Because they're important. They have meaning. They're, they're, they're valuable. Nobody should be criticizing me. And if we're going to prepare our hearts and our minds for the arrival of Christ for Advent, then those things need to be brought low. There needs to be humility that, that feel, fills that gap. A prideful person, religious prideful person, they'll agree. Yes, Jesus came. Yes, the gospel is true. Yes, I'm a sinner. But it doesn't affect them in a functional way. It doesn't humble them. It's just mechanical. It's just a Sunday school answer. But John is saying to us, that gospel, the truth and reality of Christ, has to take root in you if you're going to understand that coming, his arrival and his coming again. 
The valleys in our lives are a picture of despair. The low points in our life are where it's full of unbelief. Somebody in despair, spiritually speaking, has this mindset of just self-pity. There's this conversation in our head and our heart that goes like this, God, you would, you're not going to work here. You could never save me. I'm too bad. I'm too far gone. I'm not like those other people. And we hear that kind of language, and we think those kinds of thoughts. And it feels humble. It feels like somebody's being meek. That's the opposite of humility. It's a picture of pride. God, I'm too bad for you to help me. I'm too sinful. Uh, your promises, they may be true, but they're not true for me. I'm a special case. I'm a special person. I'm especially bad. But this person, this valley needs to be filled up with the confidence in who God is. God actually did die for you. He died for sinners. You're a sinner. And it's prideful for you to think and to push that aside to say, I'm not good enough for him. I'm too far gone, excuse me, that he could ever love me and move toward me, filling in that valley. The crooked way is a picture of deceitfulness. By deceitfulness, I think of, think of the hidden habits of your heart, of our hearts. The things that we think, the things that we've done that maybe even our spouses don't know, our friends don't know. And John is saying if you're going to be prepared for Advent, those things need to be exposed. You need to bring those things to him. If you really want to see him, those things need to come to the light. There needs to be a sense of purity. There needs to be a sense of we're giving up on our deceitful ways and we're being honest with him. Finally, briefly, there's the rough roads are a picture of indifference in our hearts. The apathy we may have towards God. The apathy we may have towards other people. Uh, to deal with that. To respond to that. To bring that uh, before God. Now, some of you may be thinking, I just want Christmas. I just want the nice trees and the, and the candles are nice. And it's Advent. That's an interesting word and concept. But why do I have to go to all this work? Why is all this preparation so necessary? And the short answer to that is because God wants your heart. He wants you. He doesn't necessarily care who wins the national championship. He doesn't necessarily care about what outfit you're wearing or what you get for Christmas or all those details, as important as they may be. What he wants is you. He wants your heart. He wants your life. He wants everything about you. He didn't die so that you would have this, uh, you would go to heaven forever. He did, but it's more than that. He wants you. He wants to show you his grace, his truth, his promises. He wants to change you from the inside out. And for many of us, we, we hear that. That sounds great, but that sounds very scary. That makes me feel very uncomfortable. And so how is it that we move towards him? How is it that we actually take up this, this, this work of preparing our hearts and our lives for this season of Advent? Well, what does John give us in his ministry? In verse 3, again, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. If we want to prepare our hearts and our minds for Advent, it means repentance. It means turning towards him. So in these closing moments, let me talk briefly about what repentance is. Talk about counterfeit repentance that sometimes we participate in. And then talk about 
why we don't want to repent, what keeps us from uh, repenting. Repentance is a change of mind. Not so much the things you think about, but a change of mind in the sense of I'm changing how I think about myself, how I think about my world, how I think about the church. It's a, it's a picture of this is what's really true. It, it comes with a sense of, of honesty that's there. It's an honesty about the things that make you tick, the things that, that frustrate you. And when we're honest with him, when we expose our hearts, as I talked about a, a moment ago, about the, the terrain of our hearts that needs to be changed, as we expose ourselves to him, he's not going to come back and crush us. He's not going to come back and give us a homework assignment. When you do these things, then we, then we can talk. But he's going to cover those things that we expose to him. He's going to cover the things that we're honest about. He's going to cover it in his grace and forgiveness and his love. Christ came to save sinners. Repentance means understanding our guilt. Understanding our guilt. Sometimes we want to repent. Sometimes we want to change because we got caught. Because somebody called us out. Because we were found out. That's not real repentance. Repentance doesn't feed on the, 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 the fear of getting caught. Repentance is about responding to our guilt. This happened. I did this. I was wrong. I am guilty. Because if it's about being caught, as soon as those consequences are removed, we're going to go back into the same habits and do the same things over and over again. Repentance is not these things. But this is what counterfeit repentance is. Sometimes we think about repentance as simply confession. If I just confess my sins, that's repentance. Confession is part of repentance. It's included in that. But repentance is far more than saying I'm sorry over and over and over again. It gets deeper. Repentance brings a change of mind, a change of direction. It moves us away from ourselves and it moves us towards God. It's by faith that we live. Repentance is not general. Sometimes we'll have this attitude, you know, yeah, I'm a sinner. I messed up. I'm not perfect. I mess up all the time. I do this. I do that. It just becomes so general. Repentance is specific. I behaved in this particular way. I had this particular attitude towards this particular person. It's specific. It's turning and it's changing our mind about specific things. Repentance is not excuse-making. Excuse so much of the time, I do this all the time, I want to blame my circumstances, or I want to blame my personality, or I was tired, or they really frustrated me, or they did this, or they did that. If it wasn't like this, then I wouldn't have done that. Repentance doesn't make excuses. It says, I did this, I was wrong, I was guilty. God, will you forgive me, and will you change me? Here's some of the reasons why we don't like repentance and why we're not inclined towards it. For one, we look at other people's sins. We compare ourselves to other people. They do this. They do that. I would never do that. I don't do those kinds of things. And it keeps us from doing what? We don't think about ourselves. We don't think about our own hearts, our own lives, our own situations, our own needs or wants. We just compare ourselves to other people so that we can look better. That's what keeps us from repenting. Sometimes we fail to repent because someone else has sinned against us. Someone else is in the wrong. They need to ask forgiveness from me. 
until they change. They're the problem. It's my husband. It's my wife that needs to change. It's my children that need to be fixed. It's the people in this room. If they would fix themselves, that's the problem. And it keeps us from examining what? Our own hearts. Yes, they may have sinned against you, but maybe you've sinned against them. Or maybe you've sinned against God in your response to them. And sometimes we fail to repent because we want to protect ourselves. Repentance feels awkward. Being honest with God feels awkward because it means I have to change. It means I may have to have an awkward conversation with somebody. It means I may have to get rid of some of my habits. It means I may have to expose myself to other people. It's scary. But here's the beauty of Advent. And here's the beauty of what John is trying to communicate to us. That Christ has come to save sinners. He hasn't come to to get rid of them. He hasn't called to judge them. He hasn't called to, to wag his finger at them. He's come to die for them. He's come to die for us. And as we move towards him, he's going to heal us. He's going to fix us. He's going to relieve us of our shame and of our guilt that's there. John is is giving us this map to move towards Christ. For us to think about our pride. For us to think about our our self-pity. For us to think about the things that we're hiding. To bring these things to him. And to work on these things. So that we can experience his advent. So that we can know him at new depths in new ways, that we can know a real joy, that the hymns that we sing can have meaning to us, they can be valuable to us, and not something that we just run through on a Sunday morning uh, to get towards lunch. Would you pray with me? Father, we uh, come to you, and uh, this way is hard, it's difficult, and we're thankful that we're not alone. We're thankful that this way means that we just come with our brokenness. We come with our fears. We come with our doubts. We come with our guilt. And we ask you to heal us. So would you work? Would you show us all that you've done and all that you will do? Would you give us greater space in our lives, in our days, to reflect upon you? and to know you as our Savior, who's come in the flesh for us. We ask all these things in Christ's name.